Well, one of my uh, favorite sports to play is golf. And uh, naturally, I was very pleased when my daughter decided to join the golf team. Uh, when she joined, she had previously only played one or two games. So needless to say, there was room for improvement. Um, there was, thankfully, she is now in her second year, and there has been a lot of improvement. Um, she's enjoying the, the, the golf team, and she's, she's made remarkable uh, progress. Now, this progress, you might guess, uh, is the result of much practice, many trips to the driving range. Now, for those of you who know anything about golf, there's a lot of information that goes into what makes for a good golf swing. So you might begin with the grip of the golf, of the golf club. You interlace your fingers, you place your thumbs down the shaft, you uh, keep your head down when you're swinging, uh, hitting the ball. You place where, the, where you're placing the ball, it has to be in the front of your stance. Uh, when, when you're driving the ball, it has to be more towards the back or the center. When you're chipping the ball, you keep your head steady, knees bent, back uh, slightly relaxed. There's a lot of information that goes into the fundamentals of a proper golf swing. Feet sh uh, shoulder width apart, the weight, the balance of, of where you are, the mechanics of that swing as you follow through. There's a lot of information. Now, of course, at some point, I'm, I'm coaching my daughter as she's swinging. At some point, I have to model that. I have to move from the, uh, relaying the information of the golf swing to actually demonstrating the golf swing. Talking about the pointers has to move to actually modeling it, demonstrating it. And this is where you might say the rubber hits the road. It's when one person models an activity and another person learns from and imitates that, internalizes that for themselves, that theory and practice come together. And this is true of any learned activity. Uh, it could be golf, it could be riding a bike. For those of you who have children uh, and you've taught your child how to ride a bike, you model that for them. You demonstrate that. And, or it might be, as we read from 1 Corinthians 4, in ministerial or pastoral service. With God's help, we will see from 1 Corinthians 4 that the appropriate imitation of godly examples in Christian ministry is critical for learning what it means to be a faithful servant leader, which in turn implies that you will become a model of this for others. To illustrate this truth, we will focus on this chapter in three different areas. Uh, first, we will look at the surrounding context of this chapter. Second, we will look at the general flow of this chapter. And then third, we will draw out 10 characteristics that a servant leader must model as an effective follower of Jesus Christ. So first, the context of this chapter. If you were here last week, uh, Pastor DeBoer actually spoke on the need for open-heartedness from 2 Corinthians 6 and 7. 
Now, providentially, he, his chapel message included uh, a description of the Corinthian uh, context in which Paul is writing his letters. So, in this first area, we can be relatively brief. It's safe to say that Paul, writing his letter to the Corinthians, addressed a church that struggled. Incest, unwarranted uh, lawsuits, sexual immorality, eating food sacrificed to idols, and abuse of the sacraments were but some of the issues that Paul addressed. In each case, Paul pointed to the, pointed this struggling church to the powerful remedy as found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, one particular problem that Paul noted early in his first epistle, and is especially relevant to this chapter that we read, uh, focused on division within the church. Within this church, uh, people attached themselves to various leaders uh, and pitted one group against the other. You, you might look uh, back at the first chapter, immediately following his opening salutation in chapter 1, Paul refers to this report that he hears from Chloe about this division within the Corinthian church. And beginning in verse 10, he highlights this sinful issue as one that must be countered. In fact, Paul rebukes uh, these separate factions with a surprising amount of vehemence. Is Christ divided, he demands? Why are you breaking off into these separate groups? Why is there this Apollos group, this Paul group, or this Cephas group? To bring this perhaps a bit closer to, to home, um, is you might say, is it honoring to Christ to separate yourself from Christ's church by breaking off into factions named after a particular man? Whether that means you identify first as a Vantilian, a Kyperian, a Lutheran, or dare I even say a Calvinist. Of course, this does not mean that we disregard how God has used men in the past within the church, but rather we value their contribution, their gifts, recognizing that insofar as they pointed us to Christ, that we can follow and appropriate their teaching. Thus, Paul makes clear in chapters 1 to 3 that the unifying core of the Christian faith is the seeming foolishness of the gospel, this gospel that centers on Jesus Christ. We therefore do not rally around a figure, a movement, a denomination. This is not your identity. Your identity is not tied to studying at this particular seminary nor is it attached to the, the theological tradition in which you grew up. No, these, these are important things uh, to some degree, but they are not ultimate. What is ultimate, Paul stresses in the first three chapters, is this seemingly foolish message of the God-man dying on the cross as a substitutionary atonement. And then his sacrificial offering being vindicated as he rises from the dead. Now, if this gospel message is the ultimate unifying factor, 
then it's truly foolish, he says, to fixate on the messenger. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Uh, They were, verse 5 of of, uh, chapter 3 makes clear, they were but ministers by whom you believed. They were, you might say, human instruments used by God. Uh, they, They were giving gifts appropriate to the gifts that they were given. And so he says, one waters, one plants, but who gives the increase? It's God who gives the increase. It's illogical then, Paul says, to glory or to boast in any one man. Quoting from Job 5 and Psalm 94, Paul writes at the very end of chapter 3, he says, therefore let no man glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Well, with this context in mind, and especially this this problem of division within the Corinthian church, we come to this fourth chapter, this chapter that we have already read. Now, my concern here is not to uh, detail uh, the entire exegesis and the application of every verse and every phrase of this chapter, but rather to look at the entire flow of this chapter, and then, as noted, to draw out these 10 characteristics of a servant leader. Now, first, the flow. You're likely familiar with the, what's called the sandwich method or the hamburger method of giving criticism. In this approach, uh, you layer your criticism. Uh, you sandwich your criticism between what's, what you might call two slices of bread. Uh, two slices, the first slice being that of praise or commendation. You first give your praise, your commendation, and then you sandwich your criticism in the middle, and then you end with another uh, praise or compliment. Now, while this method, this sandwich method, has its merits, this is not the method that uh, chosen by Paul in this instance. In fact, his method here is quite the opposite. Uh, one commentator gives this title uh, to his notes on chapter, five, uh, chapter 4, this title, Direct Confrontation with Corinthian Boasters. And then he notes in this chapter that Paul, quote, takes off the wraps and confronts the Corinthians bluntly. Now, there are two issues, especially that Paul directly challenges the Corinthians with. The first issue you find in verses 1 through 5. And his tone here is very sharp as he condemns their presumptuous and wrongful judgment of himself. You have but to look at at verse 3. You see this tone come through. In verse 3 he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. Or look at verse 5. Uh, Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. The tone is sharp, and he's condemning their wrongful judgment of himself. Second, he continues this sharp rebuke in verses 6 through 13. And here he combats 
their arrogant boasting and their reliance on their own wisdom and their own status. This uh, strong rebuke is especially noted in verse 7. He says here, For who maketh thee to differ from another? Stated another way, Paul is here saying, Who do you think you are anyway? This very strong rebuke. Paul even employs biting sarcasm in verse 8. He says here, Now you are full, now you are rich, you have reigned as kings without us. You Corinthians, he says, you live like kings who are rich, who are full, who are wise in your own eyes. But the apostles, the true servants of God, they are fools. They're weak. They're hungry. They're naked. They're homeless. They're reviled. Indeed, he says, they're counted as scum or filth of this world. His tone is biting, is sharp. And yet his tone changes in verses 14 to 17. The severe reproach is dropped. And in its place, Paul here writes as a father, warmly appealing to his straying children. He rebukes them not to shame them or to get back at them uh, for their mistreatment of him. No, he lovingly warns them here as a father corrects his children. Yes, their faults are are very serious. He does not pull any, any punches in his criticism. And yet, as one who spiritually fathers this struggling church, Paul begs them to reconsider their prideful ways and to follow him. Literally, the Greek here is to mimic or to imitate him. Of course, Paul does not mean that he is the ultimate model uh, for them to follow, but he clarifies later in in chapter 11, verse 1, they are to mimic him as far as he imitates Christ. In verse 17, a further indication of Paul's fatherly care is seen as he sends another role model to them, Timothy, this uh, person who he obviously had a lot of affection for this person who was very dear to him. Having convinced the Corinthians that his admonition comes from this spirit of fatherly love, Paul's tone in verse 18 again picks up the sharpness within which he began. He ends chapter 4 with this solemn warning that he will come and he will visit the Corinthian church again. And that depending on the response to this letter, this future visit will be one of two types. It will either be a visit of correction with this rod of discipline or a visit of love and gentleness. So this flow of chapter four thus vacillates from a stern rebuke involving even sarcasm to this warm fatherly concern and then back to this firm warning at the end. But couched within all of this criticism and within these warnings, Paul exhibits at least 10 positive characteristics of an effective servant of Christ. 
In other words, the message of 1 Corinthians 4 is not only this negative side, this negative warning to not follow the Corinthian misguided and boastful leaders. No, but Paul weaves throughout this chapter at least 10 positive characteristics. Just as a golf swing might have certain fundamentals that are necessary for a solid and effective swing, so too Paul highlights these fundamentals throughout this chapter. As a seminary students who desire to serve Christ and his church through a variety of servant leadership positions, these fundamentals are necessary for your ministry. So let's back up then, having seen the flow of the chapter, let's back up as we highlight then these 10 characteristics. The first two we can treat together as they come from the first verse, and especially these two words, minister and steward. First, we are called to be a minister or a servant of Christ. The word used here is not Paul's typical use of doulos or diakonos, but a word that is literally translated as under rower. Whereas this term servant or under rower originally referred to uh, those slaves rowing under the deck of a galley ship, in Paul's context, the term referred more to an assistant of someone who had an official position. For example, uh, an assistant to a physician or an assistant to a court official. This was the term used. A servant of Christ must then take up his or her role, yes, recognizing the, the important responsibility of such a role, but also realizing the secondary nature of such a role as an assistant. We serve, you might say, under, under the official authority of Christ, as an assistant of Christ, and hence the qualifying genitive, a servant of Christ. Second, Paul uses a near synonym in this first verse, indicating that the servant of Christ must be a steward of the mysteries of God. This term, the term used for steward here, is also an instructive one, as you might translate this as a household manager, or one who oversees and takes care of the household affairs on behalf of the household head. Like the term servant, a steward is one who recognizes that the mysteries of God do not originate in himself but that his calling is to first receive these mysteries and secondarily to manage and to handle these mysteries responsibly. As with being a, a, a servant, being a steward has attached to it great responsibility of handling the mysteries well, handling this greatest treasure of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. A third characteristic is found in verse 2. Servants of God, he says, must be faithful. If you are to assist in an official capacity, and especially if you are called to handle responsibly the great mysteries of God, then you must be one who is found to be faithful. 
You must be dependable, one who can be trusted. Notice that Paul does not highlight the intelligence of the servants of God or the servants' eloquence or some other characteristic of skill. No, but he focuses on this all-important characteristic of being faithful. Are you willing, am I willing, to follow and abide by the commands of our master? Will I, will you manage his household well? Will we accurately and faithfully handle his word of truth? 2 Timothy 2. In short, will we as servants and stewards be loyal and faithful and true to our master in all things? Fourth, a servant of Christ must operate from a clear conscience. This is uh, somewhat muted in the King James translation, which, which translates the beginning of verse 4 as, For I know nothing by myself. Now, it could be better translated, I think, as, For I am not aware, or I am not conscious, conscious of anything against me. Flowing from this characteristic of faithfulness, a servant of Christ will not knowingly or maliciously harm those within the household of God. While they can be understood by others, just as Paul was clearly misjudged and misunderstood by the Corinthians, nevertheless, God's servants will do their utmost to walk rightly before their God and his people, to, to walk with a clear conscience. Uh, having their sprinkled, uh, their hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, Hebrews 10. But this leads to a fifth mark. God's servants must submit themselves, as well as all judgments of others, to the ultimate authority and judgment of Jesus Christ. Yes, uh, Paul affirms this necessity of a clean uh, conscience, a clear conscience, but he says his own evaluation of himself or someone else's evaluation of him is not what is ultimately important. This is critically, uh, critically important, especially for church leaders. As he clarifies in verse 5, it is the Lord the one who knows and the one who sees everything, all things. This is the one who is your ultimate judge. You are not your own judge, nor are you ultimately accountable to the people that you serve. These are not your final judges. As servants, we are accountable to our master, Jesus Christ. And so we must ask ourselves, is my, is my popularity what drives or motivates my ministry? Is my self-estimation and, and what I think to be my self-worth, is this foremost in my mind? Am I fearing the people, their evaluation, their judgment of myself? Is that what's foremost in my mind? Will we fear our people or will we fear our God? As servants of God, we must, as the Puritans wrote, esteem the smiles and frowns of God to be of greater weight than the smiles and frowns of men. And sixth, 
Paul indicates that we must not go then to the opposite extreme and have no uh, concern or care for others. But rather, he says that we must have an appropriate or, or ordinate consideration of others. This is why in verse 6, Paul tells the Corinthians that they can learn from his example and the example of Apollos, and again encourages them to imitate him in verse 16. Paul recognizes that we are created in community and that it is entirely appropriate to look to and even imitate those we count as godly role models. In my, in my own uh, church, one elderly couple uh, just recently celebrated 69 years of marriage. 69 years of marriage that, that they've celebrated. And this couple, uh, for, the, for the, the 12 years that I have known them, have been faithful examples of loving service continually. What a delight that is to look to these uh, role models as beautiful examples of God's grace and demonstration of his love given to our community as examples, as spotlights of his grace. And so we can take delight in and draw encouragement from these examples that God has given us placed within our communities. Of course, as already noted, this imitation has a limitation. Uh, imitation of others is bounded by this all-important phrase, insofar as they imitate Christ. Humility, then, is a seventh characteristic. Uh, given the context that we already considered, Paul repeatedly drives this characteristic home. He, he warns against arrogance literally against inflation of yourself, puffing yourself up, or you might say, warning against getting a big head. This is, of course, fitting with the very uh, first two characteristics. Um, if you are but a servant, but a steward of God, an assistant, it, receiving and responsibly handling and passing down the mysteries of God, then what reason do you have to get a big head. It's, it's illogical, as Paul makes clear in verse 7. If we are but recipients of God's message, if but a recipient, why would you boast? The gospel message does not originate from you. It does not come from me. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not because of my brilliance. It's not because of your brilliance uh, for, that the gospel is so powerful. There is no brilliance on my part when it comes to communicating this gospel truth. Far from it, Paul says. Rather, we are called to be humble stewards who carefully treasure and carefully communicate this gospel message. Eighth, God's servants must be willing to suffer to this end. This is the point of verses 9 to 13. Are you willing to be a spectacle to the world, willing to be weak, despised, and held in disrepute? Am I willing to suffer loss, home, possessions for the sake of the gospel? And when called to suffer, how will I respond? Indeed, modeling the quintessential example of Jesus Christ, when called to suffer, 
or when reviled and persecuted, we must not respond in kind. But in love, he says, blessing and praying for those who would cause us harm. Ninth, God's servants must be lovingly shepherds of God's people. Already uh, we noted Paul's concern for this church as a spiritual father. The people that you minister to may mistreat you. They, mis they may misunderstand you, misjudge you as they did Paul. And yet as a steward of God's gospel, you are called to care for, to love the people that you serve. Our role, he says, is not a, a distant and this detached instructor. There can be 10,000, he says, such examples of these. No, your role is to be a concerned, as a concerned and loving father in relation to your people. And finally, tenthly, a servant of God must be willing to rebuke when necessary. This, of course, flows from the previous. Just as a loving father corrects and disciplines a straying child, those who are called to lead God's people must rebuke when necessary. We saw Paul did not mince words when correcting the Corinthian church, uh, when correcting their errors. But he was careful to maintain that the focus of his rebuke was not his own glory or his own reputation. Rather, he rebuked as a faithful steward to guard this gospel message. Perfecting a golf swing takes a lot of practice coupled with good coaching. Yes, there will be times when the ball veers off to one side or to another, or you might top the ball and it might dribble four or five feet in front of you. But progress is made by practicing and modeling good fundamentals over and over. This analogy, of course, has its shortcomings. And yet, exercising and practicing godly servant leadership is not far off. These ten fundamentals that Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 4 are basic to servant leadership within the church. And as we see and as we imitate these fundamentals as modeled by others, and ultimately as we imitate and follow Jesus Christ, we grow in our ability as effective servants of God. Well, let us pray to that end. Our Father in heaven, we come to you. We recognize, uh, Lord, our many failings. Even as we evaluate ourselves uh, and measure ourselves up to this list of these 10 various fundamentals of servant leadership, we recognize our failing, indeed our failing in every aspect. And so, Lord, we end with this petition that you would help us to grow in being effective servant leaders. Lord, we pray that you would uh, encourage us to be uh, ministers of God, assistants of Christ, as faithful stewards, um, humble stewards of your gospel mystery. We pray, Lord, for greater love for your, for your people. We pray, Lord, for a greater diligence uh, that we might effectively communicate the gospel in various capacities. And Father, we thank you for the greatest example of all, our Savior, our Captain, our King, Jesus Christ. 
We thank you, Lord, that we can bring our imperfections and we can lay them before the cross, uh, before our powerful Savior, Jesus Christ, and we can find in him full and free forgiveness. Father, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you for Jesus Christ, and we pray that your kingdom would be found uh, to, to grow more and more and abound more and more throughout this land. And we thank, thank you, Lord, that you use imperfect servants to communicate the gospel message. We pray, Lord, that through this seminary and through the training uh, of men and women here, that many would come forth as faithful stewards of your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.